0: in nature. And what I'm looking at is the phenomenological experience of individuals who have gone through a mindfulness-based stress reduction program. Um, I think that qualitative research in this little process of discovery, as it's been for me, has been a very parallel process to the um, process and exploration of meditation practice. and I know a lot of the data that we've been hearing and a lot of what we've been hearing has been very quantitative in nature, very hard and scientific, and there's a part of me that really wants to explore that and look at um, what the solid correlates of this experience and this practice is about. However, I think as meditators, and for those of us who are clinicians, um, qualitative research is an inherent part of this, whether it's within ourselves or whether we're looking at other individuals' experiences. Uh, the method that I'm using is called interpretive phenomenological analysis, and it's rooted in ethnography. So I am borrowing from other traditions to study this practice. Uh, in those individuals who have gone through MBSR programs. The study has just been launched, so I have no results. I will hopefully see you again all sometime soon with something useful. Um, but what I'm looking for is the emergent themes of individuals' experiences with all of the different components in MBSR. Is there's um, not only the mindfulness meditation, but body scan, yoga, uh, and some didactic training as well. So. Um, i guess i would just end by welcoming conversation with any individuals who are mbsr teachers as um, your kindness will be how i am reaching my participants and um
1: I'm sorry about that. That last person was Corin Gannis-White. And she's at Argosy University in Phoenix, Arizona. And this is Chad Johnson from the University of Oklahoma.
2: Hello. Not to be confused with the professional football player of the same name. <laughs> we share the same level of conceit, but I'm much faster than he is. <laughs> um, I'm at the University of Oklahoma. I'm an assistant professor of human relations and a licensed psychologist. I'm also a project director in the Center of Applied Research for nonprofit Organizations. <clears> organizations. <throat> uh, my primary area of research has been uh, the interface of spirituality and psychotherapy and um, and several other things, but that's been primary. And I'm gonna share a couple of projects that have to do with mindfulness that I'm very excited about. I'm also here with a, a colleague, Beth Fields, um, and I'll, I'll talk about the project we're working on together. The first project, uh, or one thing I'm very uh, interested in and excited about are <laughs> Uh, like MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, and other kinds of um, evaluations or clinical research um, sort of validating and providing empirical support for mindfulness or particularly body-oriented psychotherapies. Um, I'm particularly interested in like Hakomi and sensory motor, uh, Pat Ogden's work, sensory motor psychotherapy, which has very strong mindfulness um, components. I mean, it's, it's about mindfulness and using the body as a resource. So one project that uh, a pilot study that I conducted with a uh, colleague in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Linda Jacobs, um, was looking at uh, the use of sensory motor psychotherapy uh, with trauma survivors. These were um, women at a transitional living um, place. They uh, literally were hiding out. They'd left their homes, uh, abusive relationships, and were in a uh, private uh, apartment setting. And so uh, we had a 12-week program that we evaluated, and it was a small sample size. Um, we did find, and there were lots of confounds and no control group, uh, we were hoping to have a control group. That didn't happen, uh, but such is the life of applied research. And, uh, but we did find trends. Um, we found several women that did imp- uh, improve in terms of their ability to resource their body and use it as a source of strength rather than fear and terror and avoiding it. So, um, so that was good. Uh, We also found that, uh, and this isn't, this is sort of common with any, the training was in a group setting, and the the other sort of significant finding we had was that uh, group cohesion was very strong, so doing this together seemed to help it. I mean, they could be talking about an Oprah book club and probably would have cohesed uh, too, but but anyway, that was sort of another significant finding. Lastly, I'll, I want to share some exciting research that we're, um, with, with Beth and Linda, were preparing, and it's, uh, we're wanting to partner together, University of Oklahoma, with a nonprofit agency in Tulsa, Oklahoma, called CenterWorks, um, which does apply mindfulness and yoga and other kinds of interventions. And one project that we're working on is uh, focusing on therapists, training therapists in mindfulness and in sensory motor psychotherapy principles, Um, as self-care, so uh, with the hopes of it preventing vicarious trauma and um, burnout, (laughs) compassion fatigue. Those of you who are therapists know what I'm talking about. Um, So using these principles as a way to self-care, and we do want to do this in a a scientific way, having a control group, having a a group of therapists who go through this training. Um, I can't remember the author right now, but recently there was a study published um, similar, using a mindfulness training therapist they found that not only this wasn't looking at self-care so much, but they found that the clients of these therapists significantly improved compared to a control group. So uh, we have high hopes, um, a control group of therapists and their clients. So meaning that you know, the, the therapists who had mindfulness, their clients did better. So those are the kind of things we expect to see and hope to see. That's it. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Kendra Markle I work with a group called alter actions in partnership with Kaiser Permanente which is a very large healthcare provider in this side of the country I um, am working with persuasive technology for healthy behavior change I'm gonna uh, talk a little bit about some of the applications of the research that we've been talking about as opposed to the research itself there's a lot of tools that we can use um, and uh, technology is um, changing our culture and our world very, very rapidly, some would say exponentially, and it's, uh, it's causing some severe troubles in a lot of areas, but it's also opening up some wonderful opportunities, such as um, when people are chatting online with a machine versus chatting online with an actual person, People will volunteer much more personal information when they're talking with a machine, for example. Some very interesting things that people are noticing. Another example is that a lot of people um, carry their phone around and treat it as if it had social characteristics, like it's their little friend, right? It's their genie in their pocket. It's their... And so they trust their phone in ways that they don't necessarily trust their doctor, for example. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) some of the um, things that people have said here, oh, I just whip out my phone and I look it up on PubMed, you use your phone to get information, but what if you used your phone to get advice or reminders or other things that came from a trusted source? There's a lot of possibilities here, and the technology exists already. There's not a lot of people using it in this kind of way, so that's what I'm focused on. I'm working with Kaiser with real doctors and real patients, so it's really, really fascinating, some of the things that we're doing and some of the things that we're noticing when people um, are using our programs and services. they Number one, the compliance is really high. <laughs> And uh, number two, people opt into these things over and over and over again. They just won't stop, <laughs> <laughs> which is very unusual. Um, compliance in the medical industry, in, in case you don't know, is actually one of the big problems. Doctors say take this medication and patients don't do it. And then they come back three months later, they have the same problem. They say, Doc, help me. Did you take your medication? No. <laughs> so it's very, very interesting. So I'm going to give you a couple of other examples. Like what if? at bedtime for people who are very, very caught up in their minds and thinking and getting things done. What if your screensaver changed into something like stars fading in and your computer got a little bit darker, right, the lights (laughs) dimmed? And then maybe um, Anushka's voice could come on there and say, (laughs) you know, tuck yourself in, be compassionate with yourself, it's time to sleep. Mm -hmm. Things like that could actually be really effective for people that have a lot of trouble sleeping, right? The technology exists to do this kind of thing already. Another example is, um, let's say you've made it your goal to learn to meditate, and you have set yourself times to do it, and you really want to do it. And then you miss a meditation. What if your phone rang and reminded you and said, you know, <laughs> this is really important, and I want you to stop right now and go do it.
4: <laughs>
3: so a lot of it is a lot like virtual coaching through through <laughs> tough times or tough moments. Like if you determine that you're going to quit smoking and you have a craving, you could whip out your phone or whip out whatever it is. I can't do it. I don't... I, really want to smoke it and then it could give you the right message at the right time so these are some of the opportunities that technology is opening up for us so two quick things one is um, so far we're basically working with user reported results was this effective in helping you relax yes no ratings we need a research partner that can help us with the actual machinery to measure the difference in people's stress levels There's some wonderful grants out there right now. The NIH has made it one of their top priorities to study, understand, and incent behavior change because of some of the huge problems that we're facing with obesity and chronic conditions. These are things that can be managed by changing your behavior, and yet 50% of people today have those conditions and don't change, even when their life is at stake. Um, so if you know of somebody that, uh, is interested in a partner like that, um, please let me know. second thing is I invite you to sign up and play with some of our tools. Um, We have a number of them that we're working on this year. And if you, uh, give me your email address, I will, um, put you on a mailing list to make sure you get notified every time a new one comes out and you can play with it and tell me what you think. And lastly, if you do, um, give me your email address on a little slip of paper think about what kind of tool you would like for something that maybe you're working on in your life that you want to make change and you're finding some resistance to. And write that down, too. Um, My name, again, is Kendra Markle, and you can reach me at alteractions.org. It's Kendra at alteractions.org.
5: No.
4: Great. Thank you. Hi. I'm Daniel Levinson. I am a first-year graduate student in Richie Davidson's lab, and I don't really have any data yet, uh, but I'm working on it. So, to give a brief description of what has come before that we're following up on, there was a study on um, adepts, Tibetan long-term practitioners, uh, doing shamatha meditation and uh, we found uh, decreased activity in a brain area, uh, the medial prefrontal cortex, which is thought to be involved in um, something called the default mode network. Uh, this is a set of brain areas that is typically found to be active during rest when participants are laying in the scanner just looking at a fixation dot or a blank screen and, Tends to be deactivated when participants are given a task to do, um, so uh, one of the ways that I 'm interested in following this up is to look at uh, participants when doing a very simple task. Um, I mean we'll here have an experience that is just watching the breath and uh, ask them, "Is their mind wandering a lot?" Um, hopefully replicating some previous studies that uh, Cliff mentioned the other day, um, finding that there was less mind wandering following meditation. Um, and then also see if there's a concomitant decrease in activity in the uh, area of the brain associated with uh, default network activity, um, activity during rest. So that's my main proposal. I'm We'll see what happens in the next year, but um, looking forward to doing the research.
1: We'll sit for three minutes now. So, Larry, Larry, take your time. We'll have time after Larry for one more in this session, so uh, Michael Haggerty will be left next. Whenever you want.
6: I'd like to say a few words about some other people's research. About nine years ago, I Joined Richie Davidson's lab at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, uh, com- coming from a background in geophysics. So I used to measure the Earth's gravity and magnetic field. And I moved on to a much smaller sphere approximating the human head. But although it's smaller, it has much more going on inside of it. About three years into this adventure, the Dalai Lama came and visited the lab and toured the lab and expressed his appreciation for the scientific work we were doing. And after that, when I came into work, occasionally there would be a Tibetan monk or two in the hallway or coming out of one of the uh, experimental rooms. And this uh, led into uh, looking at the electrical signals. I worked with the nitty-gritty of analyzing the signals while Richie and Antoine Lutz, whom Cliff mentioned yesterday, thought the grand, what the grand meanings of these things were. More recently, I worked with Helene Schlacht on the attentional blink uh, experiment. I played a small part in that. Uh, that was the experiment also mentioned by Cliff. Um, Helene is an excellent scientist and actually one of the best computer programmers (laughs) I've ever met. Currently Antoine's working on fMRI data from the meditation of the Tibetan monks and looking at relations between particular areas of the brain and heart rates. So since I've uh, spent a number of years looking at the uh, meditation, I thought, since Richie offered the opportunity to come to this retreat, I should come and see for myself what meditation is like. And um, also a pilot subject in Daniel's experiment, so when I get back, I'll be able to see what sort of effects have taken place. <laughs> but I must say, uh, I've, I've been really impressed, and it's been a great Week, I look at it as an excellent way to uh, close out my 60th year and start the next decade.
1: And we'll sit for three minutes.
5: My name is Michael Haggerty. I'm also from UC Davis. Our research is uh, titled EEG Changes in Deep Concentration Meditation. Cliff has been measuring emotion regulation, mostly with respect to negative emotions. I'm from positive psychology, so I'm more interested in positive emotions. Most experts in positive psychology now say that if you want to be happy, you should have a meditation practice. That's one of the regimens they Strongly recommend. <clears throat> Our research group upped the ante and asked, is there some meditation that can be, make people ecstatically happy, blissfully happy? And in fact, there is. The Buddha talked about the eight jhanas, which are deep concentration meditations. And in fact, one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock has just published a book on the jhana meditations too. That's Richard Shankman. Called Samadhi, yeah also called Samadhi <clears throat> uh, we are looking for EEG signatures of people who are concentrating in this way um, for two reasons first we 're scientists, so we 're interested in a high signal to noise ratio. This is about the most different altered state that you can find in meditation relative to a resting state, so it should be easy to find a signal there, and second is we 'd like to use those EEG signatures to help train people. <clears throat> to become Jhana meditators. Now, we don't expect to be able to do it without a teacher. You'll always need a teacher. But instead of taking five years, perhaps, to become a jhana meditator, it might only take three years, let's say, if you've got biofeedback as well. So that's uh, one of the other possibilities here. Well, our results uh, are nicely consistent with current brain theory. Uh, one of the things that people report is that internal verbalization fades something that I wish my own meditation would do. Um, But sure enough, you look at the EEG signatures, and Broca and Wernicke's area reduce power in the gamma band and the beta band. So that's consistent with uh, current brain theory. Um, Altered sense of personal boundaries. People have more of a connection with the universe, more of a sense of connection with the universe. And sure enough, the orientation area on the right side of the brain decreases power, also in the uh, beta and the uh, gamma areas. Uh, The one area that really increases power is the executive areas of the brain, which we would hope would be true, especially the anterior cingulate. So all that's consistent with theory. We're going to be working on... uh, We have some fMRI data now to go deeper into the brain, instead of just working on the cortex, because that's where the seat of many of the emotions lie. So if this is going to be a blissful state, we'd like to see how in what way the bliss is being generated. Um, So I'm really in awe of the teachers and the students who work with us because it shows me what a great change we can make in our own brains in a relatively short period of time, both to increase bliss in the short term and also to increase insight into the human condition in the long term.
1: I think we'll, No, I think we'll just sit now. We'll do some more in the next time.
2: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.